today with Dr. K. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead. Toni Morrison, uh, in analyzing whiteness in American literature, said, what happens to the writer's imagination of a black author who is at some level always conscious of representing one's race to or in spite of a race of readers that understand itself to be universal or race She's saying it's hard to separate the imagination of the writer who has been socialized and has grown up in America. It is hard to separate that imagination from the notion of race, particularly when it comes to the ways in which we add race as a layer that then works to hold people back Toni Morrison said we have to get beyond the white gaze, the assumption that there's a default stance here in America that is centered around whiteness. We need to do the work to get behind that. She says that, you know, in, in the life of a writer, of an artist, I would go so far as to add of a student, of a teacher, of a professor, that, that life that's laid out for anyone who is directly involved in dealing with anyone else in our society. She said there's a little white man that sits on your shoulder and checks out everything you do or say. You sort of knock him off, and then you're free. Let let me just say that again. Toni Morrison, the genius that she is, used to get asked by white reporters why she doesn't write about white people. And she said, look, I write for the people that I never read about when I was growing up. I write for me and for my people. Now, her work has been and should be read by everyone. But Toni Morrison said, no, no, no. There are white people in my novels, just like there are black folks in the novels of white folks. (laughs) There were white folks there on the periphery of the experience of black folks. If you read certain novels that have been written and published and studied for years, black folks exist in the peripheries, on the edge, out on the corners. That's where we tend to exist. And nobody recognizes that there's something wrong with holding blackness to the edges. Toni Morrison said, I took the edges and I pulled them to the center that that's how I write. She said, the work that I did at first was knocking the white man off my shoulder so that I could be free. She said, because as long as the white man's on your shoulder, then you tend to use the white gaze. You tend to look at black folks with the white gaze. You tend to look at white folks with the white gaze. If you want to understand why this is important, why am I going back to Toni Morrison, Dr. K? Enough of race. Can we talk about something else? Isn't there a new song out? Does Lizzo have anything going on? Let's talk about Yeezy's tennis shoes. Enough of this race thing. Well, the reason why I bring it up again Why is it important? Again, because it just got passed in Tennessee that makes it illegal in Tennessee. When my son is going to college, Tennessee has passed a law making it illegal to teach black history to kindergartners through 12th graders. Black history is dead in Tennessee. Now, I understand, y'all, ever since Carter G. Woodson launched Negro History Week, There have been a community of folks not of color who've been trying to kill black history. Why? Because in America, 
America writ large, American history is taught like it's all of our history, and it's not. If you really take a look at it, American history is taught from the center of whiteness. It really is white American history. We don't have an American history class because a true American history class would take into account the stories of whiteness, the stories of blackness, the stories of Latinx people, the stories of Asian Americans, the stories of women, the stories of people who are physically and mentally challenged. It would take into account everybody's story since the whole idea of American history is so that all may eat. We teach American history with three K's in it. I want to get to a point where American history is taught with the C. We teach with the C, then we invite everybody to the table because that's what we're supposed to be doing. 410-319-8888. How do we get rid of the white gaze? How do we knock, according to Toni Morrison, get mad at her, not me, how do we talk, knock the white man off our shoulder? That's what Toni Morrison, you got to knock him off your shoulder because if not, you will continue to see yourself through his eyes the eyes of whiteness that seek to limit us and define us and stop us and silencing us and dismiss us and erase us. 410-319-8888. Lamont's on the phone uh, from Maryland. Lamont, how are you? Good afternoon, Dr. K. It's always a pleasure to hear a person of culture talk logic. I just have one comment. How many times do this particular culture with the black man have to read the book, friend, for no? How many times, man? Have a blessed day. Hope to hear from you soon. I agree. I agree. Well, at this point, we're going to have to keep reading that book because until we get it and understand, until we really begin to investigate why Franz Fanon's book is one that we should be using the wretched of the earth as well as black skin, white mask to really begin to understand what's happening in this society. If you have not read Franz Fanon, a French West Indian, you've got to read and listen to what he was saying about double consciousness. Now, Franz Fanon, he's not the only one, because W.B. Du Bois also talked about this double consciousness that we have, right? Because the term was first published in Du Bois's autoethnographic work in The Souls of Black Folk, right? That was back in 1903, which is why people always wonder, why do I say black folk and white folk? Because I get that from W.B. Du Bois from that 1903 book, The Soul of Black Folk. But he, he described... Like the the experience of double consciousness. What does it mean? Listen, listen, listen to this. What does it mean to deal with the psychological challenge as a black person of always looking at yourself, looking at your people, and measuring yourself and your people through the eyes of a racist white society? The boy said, double consciousness is what's holding us back. Toni Morrison took that into talking about the white gaze. And then Franz Fanon was also saying, look, we got to talk about what does it mean to come up with a new framework for understanding the position of oppressed people in an oppressed world world we need a new framework because the current framework we're using is blurred 
It's raw. It was not set up by us. It can't do what Orgy Lord wants. No, she said, you know, we cannot use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. We cannot use the tools that are set before us to destroy the framework until we go back to Morrison, knock the white man off our shoulder, go over to France Fanon and talk about, you know, black skin, white mask, head on over to W.E.B. Du Bois and talk about double consciousness and then end up with this notion of Audre Lorde. Like, let's get some new tools so we can dismantle the master's house, because as long as we are seeing ourselves through the white gaze, then we will never be enough. We will never be enough. We will always feel that it's okay to Obama talk about brothers pulling their pants up. We will always think it's okay some black pastors to tell us it's our own fault for what's happening, because it's always going to be the psychological attack on the minds of young black folks. Like, we got to talk about how do we get beyond double consciousness and when do we get to a point, y'all? 410-319-8888. Black folks, when do we get free? That's what I'm, and I'm not talking about being legally free because you're going to argue with me. Dr. K, we've been legally free since 1865 with the 13th Amendment. Nobody's talking about being legally free. Y'all, we got that. Even though I do have some questions about what freedom looks like, I'm talking about when are we going to be psychologically free? When are we going to be emotionally free? Like, when do we get free? Not from the greater white society. When do we get free from each other? When when do I get free from myself? Because if the white gaze is in place, I am seeing me through the white gaze, so I am holding me back. I am limiting myself. When do I get free? When do black folks get free? 410-319-8888. Let's go to Ben from downtown Baltimore. Ben, how are you? Okay, let me take you off speaker real quick. Yes. Uh, I just tuned in not too long ago. And the two books you mentioned are phenomenal books. I mean, it is a must-read in, in order to understand the condition that we are psychologically. And just gives just some quick antidotes. It's just like if I um, we speak two languages. We speak their language when we're in the workplace. Yep. We speak our language when we amongst each other. Uh, and then there's another sub-language, even with the younger folks, with their particular slangs of their era, the slangs of our era, and you know, so forth, so on then you have to look at the fact that if I walk down the street, uh, a person will grab their purse and they walk across the street. Or if I'm standing on the corner, you hear the door locks go down. If I walk into a store, can I help you? And they'll follow you around. All that takes a toll. All that takes a bearing. And it makes you start reflecting as to if there's something wrong with you or why is it that every time you show up somewhere, there's got to be something wrong or there's a there's there's got to be a crime committed, or you running because you did something. You know, the thing is that I took a lot of time. I'm programming myself because this is all social engineering, right? And they know the effects of what they do because it's it's about our destruction ultimately. So yeah, I hope people get a chance to read that. It's a very important book to read. Thank you so much for dropping in and saying that. Uh, folks, I want to expand on on kind of what Ben was talking about. Like he has to, you have to deprogram yourself, right? I mean, it, it's a lot of work. I mean, I want you to think about it for a second. 
that how you raise your child, I just want to talk, if, you, if you're a parent, you raise your child in a very particular way. You, you are imprinting so much on you of you on that child. And then society plays a role. Social norms, laws, uh, media, all of them, you know, family, friends, siblings, all of them help to, to make the child into who they are. If that child wants to get beyond what you taught them, whether you specifically told them or you modeled the behavior, they're going to have to get deprogrammed. I don't want to be like my mother, so I'm going to have to work at that because there are things inside me that are like my mother that I don't even recognize until they come out. I actually have to work to deprogram myself so that I am not like my mother, and it has to be intentional, and it has to be all the time, and it has to. I have to keep working at it until it becomes a habit, right? Let, let's talk about that. Let's. And it's something that my husband used to tell my sons all the time. Whenever they started off with doing something negative, he would say, "You know, I want to nip it now in the bud. I want to nip it in the bud. Why? Because it's hard to break something once it becomes habitual. You gotta stop it in the beginning." Your first time your child puts their thumb in the mouth, they put the thumb in their mouth and they're sucking it, you got to stop it and nip it off there because it's hard once it becomes a habit. The first time you see your child overeating, right, eating more than you know they're not hungry, you got to stop it there because obesity is hard. I mean, I'm not going against people who have, I'm just saying, habits. Habits are hard to break. Nobody got addicted to cigarettes the first time they smoked. They probably coughed. And they just kept, I don't, I don't understand why, but they worked on through the coughing until all of a sudden it became enjoyable. But it's a beast to get that off your back. You and I know. If you know somebody who smokes, who, who drinks, or like me, I mean, in terms of my diet, it's a beast when it's on your back. Think about that. We've been, I'm going to draw the, the parallel for you, right? We've been socialized in America since 1619. Hear me what I tell you. We have been socialized in this country till 6 and 1619. And if that is the case, trust me, it will not end with me going, you know what? I'm going to be free. I'm no longer going to see myself through the white gaze. No, 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 no. I'm going to have to work on it day in and day out. I'm going to have to be intentional in terms of fighting against the white gaze, against double consciousness, as Du Bois talked about and Franz Fanon talked about. But I want to add one more layer on this, since we're, we're, since we're talking, right? Let's add one more layer on top of double consciousness, because in the 21st century, there was Du Bois's notion of double consciousness to now talk about triple consciousness. Listen to this. This is something. That triple consciousness gets into this idea that there's intersecting identities that impact your social experience. And it's not just one thing. Like where it's just I'm black and my double consciousness is blackness in a white world. No, no. Because we know Kimberly Crenshaw in introducing that word intersectionality is saying, you know what? It's not just I'm black in a white world. No, I have intersecting identities. I am black and a woman in a white world. I got to add that in there. I'm black and a woman. I'm economically challenged in a white world. I'm black. I'm a woman. I'm in a biracial relationship in a white world. I'm black and I'm a woman. I'm raising two black sons in a white world. Like We got to be able to put down all the intersecting identities 
so we can understand it. Who, who talks about this? Let's kind of lay that out. I gave you Kimberly Crenshaw, Anna Julia Cooper, uh, in her book, A Voice from the South, older book, but, but she wrote that only the black woman can say when and where I enter in the quiet, undisputed dignity of my womanhood, without violence, without suing, without special patronage, then and there, the whole race enters with me. Only the black woman can say when and where I enter. Now, you may know just that little last part of it if you're familiar with the work of Paula Giddings, who wrote the book When and Where I Enter. Pull from that and talking about the history of black women. You also take a look at Josiana Arroyo, who wrote, Look, triple consciousness brings spaces and culture and skin to recontextualize blackness, particularly in the case of black Puerto Ricans. That when we talk about triple consciousness, then we're going to pull all of this together. How do we do this? Joanne Brooks on Facebook Live said, look, beyond double consciousness, together. She put that in quotations. When and how. It's so weighted that the church and organizations need to come to grips that they are not unified. We need one mindset and not one hero. We need to pull back the cover and figure out how to break from the established white enslavement of double consciousness. Double consciousness holds us all back. Listen, because double consciousness is not a positive thing. I mean, Du Bois wasn't saying in a positive way. France Fanon was saying, hey, let's celebrate double consciousness. He's like, no, no, no. Let's stop having this dual existence where we exist as black folks only as a reflection of whiteness. That is where the danger is. We do not exist as the absence of light, right? I mean, blackness doesn't just exist because whiteness exists. It doesn't. Like, we, if we were to, this is my question to you, if we were to connect ourselves as black folks in this country to black folks across this planet, do you think we would begin to see ourselves differently? So instead of seeing ourselves as being less than, while we're only 12.1 to 14% of the population, we start to see ourselves as more than because black folks in terms of making up the majority outside of America, blackness reigns supreme, brownness reigns supreme. And I don't mean in terms of superior or inferior, I'm just saying we're not less than outside the borders, but we have been taught and been socialized and been led to see ourselves, black folks in America, as being separate from black folks around the planet. And, because it's two-handed here, and black folks outside of America, whether they're on the continent, whether they're in Britain, whether they're down in South America, whether they're up in Canada, they have been taught to see themselves as separate from us. There's got to be a reason why when our brothers and sisters come over from the continent, there's not a lot of connection that's happening, not a lot of connecting, as if we are one. We have to find a way to do it. Zora says, look, she does not internalize the micro-macro aggression. She responds accordingly. Well, Zora, sister, I'm thinking you must be doing the work. It's hard work to do. 
Let me add you something that uh, got a little piece here from CPC Law. He says, look, there seems to be certain perspectives missing from this discussion. How are we having a conversation about boys' deficiency, specifically so-called black boys' deficiency in America without black men on the panel? Let me just be clear, CPC, the panel wasn't just about black boy deficiency. We were actually having our weekly news roundup. And the men that we invited were unable to join us. That just happens to be one of the stories I laid on the table, and that's the one that took fire that we drilled down deep in. But we were not specifically excluding black men. Additionally, CPC says, look, the measure of discussion is is off base. For the measure of so-called deficiency in America is a psychological valuation, which includes the mental decapitation of the so-called black boy to remove him as the head of his family and his community. He also talked to his CPC law, talked about the voluminous TV commercials of interracial parenting by white men and so-called black girls caring and loving. But I have yet to see a white man and a so-called black boy from an interracial relationship with the same embrace. Okay. He said the correct measures of the plight of the so-called black boys and men are psychological and physiological. 110. 319-8888. Trayvon's on the line from Hartford County. Trayvon, how are you? Oh, nope, they're calling me for the break. Oh, I'm getting so far into this conversation, I'm losing the break time. So, Trayvon, hold tight, buddy. When we come back, I'll come straight to you, and we'll finish off the last half hour. We'll finish it strong, and we'll finish it together. <laughs> Dr. K.Y.'s Whitehead, triple consciousness, double consciousness, the white gaze, intersectionality. I want to just throw one more thing in before I go to Trayvon. So so Paul Gilroy, uh, in his book, The Black Atlantic, Modernity and Double Consciousness from 1993, he talked about the Black Atlantic as a source for cultural construction. So, so what he's arguing there is that we, we need to begin to see the Atlantic slave trade as the foundation for the diaspora. That we got to start thinking about the significance of European and African transnational travel as a foundation for double consciousness. So what Gilroy did is that he used Du Bois' theory of double consciousness to suggest that there exists an internal struggle to reconcile being both European and black. That here's the thing. This piece here around double consciousness that Du Bois said, Du Bois and Franz Fanon said, look, double consciousness is that I'm black in a white world. And that Toni Morrison's piece around the white gaze only adds a layer to that, that I see myself existing only because I exist in the shadow of whiteness, that blackness and whiteness are together, and that without whiteness, there would not be any blackness, okay? So let me just note that double consciousness is something that is concerning. It's what Toni Morrison said about knocking the white man off your shoulder. That when you add to that, this notion of triple consciousness takes into account ethnicity, takes into account the intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw really illuminates in her work and what Anna Julia Cooper talked about when she wrote When and Where I Enter, that black women must determine when and where I enter because only when black 
women enter, then the whole race comes with us. When we enter, when we get free, we bring black men and black children with us. Add to that, now hear me out, add to that what Malcolm X said. Because Malcolm X said what? That the most disrespected person, the one, the one who's the least protected, the most abused, is the black woman. It's this idea, as Zora Neale Hurston said, that we are like mules in this society. And in order for us to be free, in order for us to get beyond double consciousness, get beyond triple consciousness, get beyond the white gaze, get beyond being a mule, get beyond seeing our back as a bridge for everyone else to cross, then we need to talk seriously about how do we break out against the oppression that we've been socialized to believe that we live underneath. How do we get free? 410-319-8888. Trayvon's on the phone from uh, Hartford County. Trayvon, thank you for holding. How you doing, Dr. K? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Thank you. Yeah, I just was so shook by what you just spoke to the listening audience that I have to really, really grab myself and say 100%, a million percent right if you don't respect my black sister, how are you going to respect anything that I come from? I come from a woman, a black woman. So I share this to you because when I turned on the radio, I said I need my dose of Dr. K. May it be monthly, bi-weekly, or yearly. I needed my dose. So when I cut on the radio, you was in the African diaspora speaking about how the brothers and sisters on the continent, Canada, or whatever. I said, wow, that's deep. Because when I got a call this morning from one of my good young brothers, uh, he's out there in Kenya, and he, he FaceTimed me or WhatsApp me. I'm like, what's up, brother? You know, when you get a call like that, I said, where you at? He said, I'm in Kenya. It just changed my whole day to mm. be, like, virtually or psychologically in Africa this morning, Monday morning, October like 25th. That. So that changed my whole day knowing that there are brothers and sisters that travel in the world that do reach back, like you say, lean in. Yeah. And that was a lean in moment. But I just want to switch pages to brother Dr. Umar that was dropping science on how when they took certain things away from the black woman, which number one was the black man in the 70s, and the way we would be able to, how would you say, have a family, and then the crossover to brother Malcolm X, when he said if you open that hand up, it's not as strong as a fist. You enjoy your knowledge. Keep sharing it. And I love that I called today. Thank you, Dr. K. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Let me go to Mark from Pikesville, and then we'll go to Susan. Mark, how are you? Dr. K, always a pleasure. Long time since. You know how it is in DCPS. It's really busy. Yeah, welcome back. Yes, man. See, you know, that, that white gaze, is that strikes so deep. That cuts really deep for me because... I don't know if you remember a conversation you and I had oh, about six months or so. We talked about my daughter's hair. Yes. And one of the dearest women in her life and my life, my mother, her grandmother, told me one day when she was a little baby girl saying, you know, she really doesn't have good hair. And I'm like, what does that mean? What are you, what are you measuring good hair by? What is, what is your, you know, because I've been in a, a pan-African state of mind for, 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 since my 20s. Right. Yeah, I'm 55 now, and I just I would ask, what, Mom, what does that mean? What is your standard of measure? And once again, go fast forward, Dr. K, over uh, 15 years, 
to her prom day night. And we're all standing in the living room, and they're taking pictures. My daughter's looking her, looking so beautiful. She's gorgeous. And my sister-in-law, who happens to be a, a white woman, looks at her and goes, your makeup is flawless. And she says, oh, Aunt Linda, I don't wear makeup. Mm. And Aunt Linda, this white lady, my, my white sister-in-law goes, oh, my God, my, your skin. My mother says again, 15 years later, yeah, but I just think you need a little this. And I'm like, Mom, again, 15 years later, what are you measuring your granddaughter by? What standard of measure? And then to hear you say now, 20 years later, white gaze, that really cuts for me because I remember my daughter saying to me, Dad, why am I not good enough for Grandma? Mm. And that's, that's, that's what that leads to, just to bring it home for all of us. Me, you know, here I am, you, Mom, you've been around me long enough to know that we don't use these standards that, that they, the, the average, I like to say European-American standards, to measure our people by. That's not how we do it in our house. And so that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, little, <laughs> a little flushed because no, I'm, taking back, I'm, I'm taking back to those moments why aren't we ever good enough for it, for it, for each other? We are for ourselves. Why aren't for we ourselves. good enough for, good it, enough for ourselves? Because that's what you're getting. And Mark, what it, what I appreciate is that you recognize these moments and you were able to drill in with your daughter. What makes me sad is to think of all the comments that have been made to our children, and yes. we were not there to protect them, to exactly. cover them, to speak. It's the comments that are made by teachers. It's the comments made by grandparents. Boomers who grew up during a time when the white gaze was the heaviest, heaviest. in terms of yes. the last generation now, right? Because it's the boomers, the Xers, millennials, millennials, right now, the ones who dealt with it the heaviest were are the boomers. Yes. I mean, you're talking about the white gaze coming through Jim Crow. It's not just Ooh. that you were less than, you were shown every day. It was reflected back to you every day that not only you're less than, that you are not even a dog here on the plantation. Yes. Dogs are higher than you. Oh, Dr. K. Come on. Thank you so much. I'm going to try not to be so long, but. I appreciate know, you. I take care and I miss you guys. Take care. Thank you. I appreciate Hey, folks, think about that. I mean, because if you, you have a boomer, grandparent, great grandparent, if they grew up down south, dogs could go into restaurants that we couldn't go into. We were shown more than once that we are not higher than dogs in this society. When we talk about the power of the white gaze, I really want you to think about how long it has been that has worked against how we see ourselves. This is not just something that happened yesterday. It's not just simply shrugging it off and shake. It is deep-rooted in us. And here, hear me out. Part of this, let me tell you how it gets manifested. How does it show up in black people? Colorism. You hear me? Yeah, I put colorism on the table. Because we still have this light skin, dark skin, paper bag test. I've heard Young people my son's age use the term red bone. I'm like, what, you're still using that? I mean, I heard that from my father's friends. I heard it when I was in college, and now I'm hearing the next generation use it as well. Like, we still haven't gotten beyond that. Good hair, bad hair discussions, light skin, dark skin discussions, and we as black folks are suffering together, and yet we are infighting. When are we going to get free? We have Susan on the phone from Maryland. Susan, how are you? Hi, Dr. K. Thank you for having me. You know, I just turned the radio on 
So I didn't hear your whole conversation, but that is amazing that the guy just spoke about something I just had an experience with yesterday. I had to go to Jersey for a funeral for one of my first cousins that passed suddenly. So on the way back, we caught the bus, the Greyhound, and I sat next to a, a Caucasian lady, and she was friendly, and we got to talking and stuff. So then she started telling me about her family. So then she pulls the phone out. She couldn't wait for me to see her, her great her great grandson, and I could look and tell that he was mixed with some color. So she showed me a couple of her granddaughters who were. She told me they were uh, half. Uh, their father was African American. So <clears throat> and then she says, "Don't they have some of the most? Aren't they some of the most beautiful babies you've ever seen?" Um, you know, the mixed ones. And it just made me think back to this uh, Caucasian guy I was on the app with the news app, and he made a racist comment about how black women, you know, they they, they, they can't wait or they want to have a baby by a Caucasian man because they look better. And I, I went on in on him, and I'm not going to tell you what I said. But anyway, I wanted to ask you, Dr. K, have you ever read or heard of a book I saw my mom is reading now. It's called PTS. It's called Post Traumatic Slavery Syndrome. Okay, I want to. I want to read it. Okay, it's Joy DeGruz's book. No. Yeah, that's what she said. Okay. So is that is that a good one? I would I would recommend that because what she talks about in this book, when you talk about the post-traumatic slave syndrome, that we as black folks in this society are dealing with the aftermath right. of being enslaved. So what she begins to look at in this book, and this is Joy DeGruy, folks, her book deals with enduring injury and healing. How were we impacted by American slavery and how can we get beyond how we've been traumatized and right. if we don't address it head on, Susan, then we're never going to get beyond it. Right. Okay. I'm not going to try the phone line up, no, but I thank appreciate you. you. Alright, thank you. Have a good day. And keep so, doing what you do. Thank Bye. you very much. Folks, I just want to just kind of, because drill into that, right? Okay, so now, so, so we've been layering this. We, we have put white gaze on the table. We put double consciousness on the table. We put triple consciousness on the table. We put uh, the ways in which we need a new framework on the table. We, we put all this on the table. What Susan just did is she just took it to the next level. Okay, so post-traumatic slave syndrome. If you take a look, this PTSS is the work of Joy DeGruy. And, and what she talks about is that there are some similarities between PTSS, post-traumatic slave syndrome, and PTSD, right? That's dealing with that, you know, the whole stress disorder. Like there's, there's some similarities. And a person who went to war, when they come back, if they hear something, you know, blast, they may fall down because they think it, it connects to somebody shooting or something going off or a bomb. They have PTSD, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. PTSS saying that for us as, as black people that a couple things come out as a result of it. Multi-generational trauma is a result of us dealing with injustices from the dawn of slavery. Listen, child, come on. 
we have been dealing with pain and trauma since they pulled the first 20 or so captured African folk off that boat in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. From there, if you want to do the continuum of black pain, the continuum of black stress, the continuum of black hurt, you got to go back to 1619. And there is a direct line. I, I'm telling you, there's a direct line between then and now. That, that we, we're not going to be free until, if you believe Anna Julia Cooper, we're not going to be free till black women are free. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, you got to see that there's some truth in that. The Kumbahi River Collective said, look, when black women get free, everybody else can get free. Nobody can be free until black women are free. And until we get beyond the white gaze, until we get beyond colorism, until we get beyond black women being the mules of this society, till we get beyond all of that, till we get beyond underpaying black women for the same type of labor as our male counterparts and our white women counterparts, until we get beyond that, ain't nobody going to be free until black women are free. PTSS is, look, we are traumatized as black people in this society. We, we are hurting. We actually need, according to Joy DeGruy, we, we need to get some mental health assistance for black folks. I'm making the argument, look, I don't even think there are enough black counselors in America to really deal with the amount of pain that we have as black folks. I, I know it is. Come on. I, I know it is. As a black woman, I won't even start to testify on the radio. I don't even have to tell. I don't even have to tell my story for you to understand the stress that comes from being a black woman in America. My blackness does not exist in relation to or as a reflection of or as a result of whiteness. I stand alone. Maybe Part of us getting beyond double and triple consciousness, part of us getting beyond the white gaze, part of us knocking, as Toni Morrison said, the white man off our shoulder, maybe part of it is for us to begin to realize that we as black folks do not stand separate and alone from other black folks this planet over. We'll stop seeing ourselves, quote, as the minority. We'll stop seeing ourselves, quote, as being less than when we recognize that outside of the American borders, blackness reigns supreme. We are not minorities. We're not. We're marginalized people in this society, but we ain't minorities, folks. We're not. And maybe it's time for us to reach across these borders and start to see the world as much bigger than America from sea to shine and sea, right? Like, the world is a lot bigger from the, from America, from Maryland to California, all the way up, if we're going up the way, to, to Michigan, up to Chicago, Illinois, and down the what, Florida, Louisiana. Like, the world is much bigger than that. We are a small little piece of a very large world, and maybe if we as black folks saw ourselves in that gaze, then we wouldn't see ourselves as being less than. Let's talk to Donna. Donna, how are you? How are you doing, Dr. K? I'm doing well. Thanks for calling. Well, and I and I call all the time about this, and mm -hmm. 
One of the things that when I hear Brandon Scott talk about the crime and, and you know, you know, getting the men on the street to disperse it, we still don't, we're still missing the missing link of what you just talked about. We got to deal with the, the women. Our black sisters, our black women are in pain. You know, you know, we can't correct this problem until we actually get down to the, the seed of the pain, which is why our children are in pain and, and, and where the killings and the shootings and stuff. And I know it's hard for our black men, and sometimes our black men do call up and talk about, you know, what um, they try to talk about or bring up the issues of black women, but they don't want to get, they don't want to get attacked. And I'm sure Brandon Scott don't want to get attacked, too, and all the men who he's talked to. But we have to have this open dialogue, and we have to focus on our women. We have to have our women talk. And it's not finger-pointing, and it's not you this, and, and I did the best I did. We, we don't want to hear that. We need solutions. We need healing. We need trauma care because... We are hurting as black sisters. I don't care if you have five degrees, you have no degree, whatever. We are hurting. Whether you have children or not children, you see the pain. We all feel it. We feel it, felt it when we were, when we were raising our own families. I mean, I've had, um, we, I had a conversation with a couple of my girlfriends and we talked about how hard it was for our mothers to talk about you know, the, when we, you know, the period, when we went, when girls were time, it was time for girls to come on a period and how we don't want, you know, how mothers did, had struggled to even talk to us about that and who we had to go to. And that stuff still goes on today. It's a struggle to be a woman. It's a struggle to be a black woman in this country. But we have to have this dialogue. We also have to change some of the institutional racism that the social welfare system has created that has enslaved our black women and the cycle that keeps the cycle going. And we have, our black women have no voices. We have to open up a dialogue to get our black women to have more voices and be comfortable and not finger point. And we have to have our black men to be able to talk to because that anger that our black males are feeling and the anger that our black sisters are feeling, you can see it in what's happening on the street. And thanks, Dr. K, for bringing up this Let me ask you this, Donna, because I know that you you read a lot of the work from Dr. Frances Cress-Wellesley. You talk about it a lot. But this is part of the work that she was doing as well. I mean, she named that white supremacy. Yes, she did. She is the one that talks about why it's dangerous. So I tell people they need to go read the ISIS papers. But that why it's dangerous for us to see ourselves only in relation to those that oppress us. Because if that's the way you see yourself, you'll always see yourself as being less than. Right. And and I I hear our sisters, and I see our sisters feeling the only solution to their situation is to be part of the problem and not be a solution. Um, when they see their son selling drugs, they feel, you know, maybe that's the only way they can get out of poverty. And that's not. You know, I, you know just my experiences in, in, in high school, I had a sister say when she got kicked out of her mom's house, once she reached 18, we were all off to college. She had to live on the street and she had to live with other people and the, when she went to social service for assistance, they told her, we'll get you, we can give you everything if you get pregnant. That's devastating. And I begged her not to go that route. Let's find another solution. But she ended up going that route, having two and three kids, and all of them ended up in the system and all messed up. 
We have to stop the system, the institutional system that keeps our women impoverished and, and then keeps our women um, being sexualized in society because you can't even go out to, outside and look nice without men thinking that you're trying to be, you're trying to be sex, you, 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 know, you, you know what I'm talking about. They, want, they think you're trying to get your, their attention and you want to feel good about yourself, not trying to get their attention because you're a woman. You see what I'm saying? Right. So there's a That's lot of saying. stuff yeah. going on. And that's okay. And I thanks again for your, your topic. And we need to have more talk. Thanks. No problem. I appreciate you. 410-319-8888. Let's go to Alan from Maryland. Alan, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm Can doing you well. Me? Thank you for calling. Yeah, I just wanted to um, throw in a little piece here. I heard you mention double consciousness and triple consciousness. And... Um, I'd written a piece a couple years ago, which I think is a good solution and a step towards healing. And it's, a, um, it's an article. It's in innercivilization.com. And it talks about moving from double consciousness to I can't really understand. We need to fix Alan's mic. Hello? All right. So, folks, give us a call, 410-319-8888. How do we get free? Is freedom something that is an option? I mean, I, I'm just starting to, to wonder what, what freedom looks like uh, for black folks because I think we have a lot of dreams of freedom, what we need is a different type of plan for getting there because freedom is hard work, not legally free, not even economically free. I'm just talking about being psychologically free at this point, mentally free, emancipated, as my man Bob Marley would say, right, <laughs> from mental slavery. None but ourselves can you know, see us through. Come on. G's on the phone from Annapolis. G, how are you? Well, how you doing, Dr. K? I'm doing well, thank you. Dr. K, you know, I got to, you know, when you, when, you, when you bring these topics up, there's one word that keeps coming to mind to me about these things that we're going through. Why are we so afraid to unite? My whole question is, all these things we have, we will not unite for one another to fight for one another. I, I, look, I was in the military for 23 years, and uh, most of my uh, leaders who taught me were women. Uh, my platoon sergeant, my platoon leader, my company commander, and my battalion commander, the EXO, they taught me a lot about, you know, making sure that things are in proper decency and order. So my whole question is, why is it so hard for us to unite as a people to get what we need to get done, done up? I don't understand why. We need, you know, we need these things, the post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic slave disorder. And, and, and like I said, the women, I'm going to tell you something. You're right, Dr. K. You're absolutely right. If black women are free, I guarantee to tell you this world will be a whole lot better place. Thank yeah. you, Dr. Kelly. Oh, yeah, I like I'm with you. If black women are free, it would change a lot. We have Mike on the phone from Maryland. Mike, how are you? Hello, how are you doing? Can you hear me? Well, I can hear you. Thank you for calling. Great, great. What I wanted to talk about, and, I, and I, I've listened to you off and on throughout the uh, years and so, and, and you're great. Thank you for everything you do, everything you say. It's definitely a blessing to us. I want to talk about the laws, though. Mm. And, how, like, what laws do we need to change? 
like, I, I mean, I know being conscious and I know, you know, realizing this and realizing that as a people, but, you know, I, I feel like that, you know, we need to get in, in these courts and then in, in these, in these uh, places where they create the laws and, and change them state by state, federal, you know, whatever it may be. Like, when do we change laws? Well, I'm glad you said that, Mike, because I think we should kind of layer this a little bit. So what laws do we need to change? The interesting thing is just in the last couple of weeks, they've actually passed more laws that we now have to go back and try to change. There's a law in Tennessee now against the teaching uh, black history in K-12 through grade. There are 16 states that have banned critical race theory, so there's no talking about uh, race history at all. There's a law with Senate Bill 8 that deals with body autonomy in Texas. There are gerrymandering laws that are on the books now that they're trying to get passed in southern states from Florida all the way over. Mike, if you look at it across the board, we are now trying to now get rid of laws that were just recently passed that will put us back into a state of oppression. Like, the work is a never-ending process. But why do those laws even get to, get, get to that point? Like, it, it, it just boggles my mind that we're in 2021. Oh, yes. And we, we're, we're still arguing over the same stuff yes, our ancestors no. argued That's over, fought, right. lost their lives over. And we're still letting things come up that we clearly know that are against us. Like, why do we even have that person in office get them out, vote them out, or, or, or we get ourselves in there? Right, but, or but, something. That, but that is something. I just want to make a note. We can vote them out in places where you have a majority of Democrats who are voting. The places that we're talking about now passing these state-level laws are Republican-controlled states. That is what we're seeing. Remember, this is not bubbled up to the federal government. These are Republican-controlled states, and the laws that they're passing are laws for Florida. They're for Texas. They're for Alabama. Now, they may form a coalition. Now, there's 16 of them, but these are not federal laws that we can then fight at the highest court to get rid of. Not yeah, with those laws, though, can't Texas, we? Though. With those laws, can't we challenge them in the Supreme Court? If the Supreme Court will take them up, remember the Supreme Court only takes eighty cases a, a year, even though they oh, get that somewhere I did not around. Know. Oh yeah, they only take eighty cases a year. They get ten thousand writ of certiaries. A writ of certiorari is to put in so that the Supreme Court will take up your case. It's not that they only take about eighty a year. That's it. So you can try with the hope they'll take. But if they don't, it's the state-level course that make the final decision. I'm going to end it there. We have a lot more to talk about tomorrow. So why don't we meet here at 2 p.m. tomorrow, and why don't we have another conversation that matters. I really appreciate you joining in, tuning in, leaning in, and listening in today. I look forward to tomorrow. Forward to tomorrow. Forward to tomorrow.